The one huge thing that has changed is that your stories and columns go online and people comment on them. From a good maybe 10, 15 years of my career, I suppose, there was no such thing. You know, you had a letter to the editor or you might get an angry phone call from someone or worse still, your editor might get an angry phone call from someone. Then you get an angry phone call from the editor. But the idea that you'd have hundreds of angry people just burbling on ad infinitum under your story, that just didn't happen. So it was a complete shock to the system. <laughs> this is The Talent Show, a new podcast series from FT Talent, a hub of innovation from the Financial Times. It's hosted by under-30s for the under-30s around the world. This second series is about all the aspects the FT organization is covering today, from editorial to development, from data to talent. I am Virginia Stagni, and this is a guide we designed to inspire you to be the one driving innovation and change. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by the FT business columnist, Pilita Clark. How are you, Pilita, today? I'm very well, very pleased to be here. Very honoured to be here, actually, Virginia. We are honoured to have you. We read your pieces um, on the FT. We have been actually promoting a lot of the things that we have been writing on boardrooms, women, diversity, and also how to develop your career um, in the corporate space within our FT talent social media and newsletter. So, Pilita, um, would you like to share a bit about your career path and what has been leading you to turn one of the best FT business columnists? Well, um, well, I don't know about that, but I, um, well, I, I um, kind of snuck into the FT in 2003 completely by accident um, because I came over here then because my husband was actually posted over here and I took leave from my newspaper in Australia and while I was here, a friend of mine who was working at the FT knew that they were going to be starting up um, a magazine, a Saturday magazine for the first time, or a weekend magazine. And I had just finished editing a news magazine in Sydney. And it turned out at that time, the FT didn't have many people who'd had much experience with magazines. And so my friend said, I think you should just come in and help them out just a couple of days a week, maybe last a couple of weeks if you like, up maybe up to a month. They just need a hand getting things started up. And um, here I still am. 20 years later, the way I got into journalism in the first place that gave me the experience that meant that I was able to come and actually work at the FT. That all happened um, because I kind of made it my mission to make it happen. And I didn't benefit from any um, friends of my parents or friends of anyone else's. So I'm acutely aware of how infuriating it is <laughs> to, see, to see people who just glide in because of people they know. But I think it's it's really interesting what you said. You made your mission to be a journalist. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I did always want to be a journalist. I cannot actually really tell you honestly why that was. I just knew that I grew up in a really small, quiet, dull place in Australia. It was in the state of Victoria. Uh, I was on a farm. It wasn't the farm itself wasn't even near a village. It was way away from everything, certainly wasn't near a town or a city. And basically, I, I knew that everything exciting and interesting happened somewhere I was not and was never going to be the way things were going unless I really made an effort to get out there. And it occurred to me that one way of doing that was to be a journalist. 
And so, I mean, my parents did know journalists and, um, but they were kind of generally people who'd been journalists in earlier lives. They weren't always people um, who were working journalists at the time. But I could see that this was going to be a way that people of um, people who might otherwise have really struggled to figure out what was going on in the world, let alone travel around the world, might actually be able to do it if they could get a job in this in this uh, field. Even though I knew that I wanted to be a journalist, it all I I also knew that I wanted to have some experience of life, and so I thought I would take a gap year between um, the end of high school and university. So um, I applied to several universities, um, got into a couple, including one that had just started offering uh, journalism studies. Um, And then I went off travelling and one gap year turned into two gap years, which turned into three gap years, which was just ridiculous, but I was having a great time doing lots of things. So in the end, I finally got around to university. I wouldn't necessarily recommend this to people listening, um, although... You know, it didn't really, it wasn't a problem then. I think I would feel a lot more pressure if I were the same age now. Um, Yeah, but eventually I ended up at university, did an English degree, but there were a lot of journalism units in it. And part of the the way that it operated was the, there there were a lot of working journalists who were lecturers and um, tutors, and they had contacts in newspapers. And so they basically helped you to get experience, work experience at least, in these papers. So can you just describe uh, what does it mean to be a business columnist for the FT and especially how does your day look like? So my day sometimes can look incredibly interesting. I can be sitting around one of the meeting rooms that we have here in Bracken House with the chief executive of a really big, well-known company. Um, They can be talking on the record or off the record, and we have the privilege of um, asking them all sorts of, any sort of question that we want. Alternatively, I can be sitting in my yoga pants in front (laughs) of my laptop for hours and hours on end, racing to try to finish a column and struggling and getting distracted by (laughs) everything from making 15 cups of coffee to um, anything else that um, makes the typing flow faster. But uh, so it, it, yeah, it's pretty variable. And what, what do you find most exciting about it? I mean, the most exciting thing about it is that just as I hoped when I was 12, you actually can get out and be paid to meet extraordinary people, see amazing things and visit extraordinary places if you're super lucky and basically satisfy your curiosity about how the world works. And uh, if there is one thing that is quite extraordinary about you is that you have been uh, winning for uh, three years in a row the Environmentalist Journalist Award of the Year. How did you turn uh, from exploring the world, entering in the business uh, dynamics, and then now in this environment world? How did you basically, I, I believe, pivot a bit your interest and your style to go into this direction? Yeah, I mean, I I actually always, I, I was always interested in um, environmental problems and solutions and how to overcome them, but it always struck me that it would be fascinating to cover that uh, if you worked on a business newspaper because companies, corporations were the ones that were really going to be 
um, forced to change quite dramatically um, by the need to, for example, cut greenhouse gas emissions um, or any, indeed any, uh, any kind of uh, government regulation to do with climate change was going to have big impact on a lot of companies, not just the oil and gas companies, but actually um, all of them. So it always struck me that it was going to be a really interesting business story. And indeed, it's proved to be that. And, you know, the great thing about the FT is that we are given room to write sometimes thousands of words um, about it, which is handy when, you, um, when you're entering journalism competitions, to be honest. But, you know, I mean, no, we're lucky because we're, we're given the time and we're given the resources to be able to go and to report on stories that, um, you know, I know a lot, of, um, a lot of people in the media don't have those advantages. So I'm always very aware of that. And I think really this intersection between business uh, sustainability and uh, climate change is really at the forefront of the, what is necessary to be talking about and discussing and really building a dialogue between generations. And so what has been the most exciting story that you have been writing about this that you would like to mention? So... I think one of the most exciting stories for me to report on was probably um, this amazing opportunity that I got uh, to go and spend nearly two weeks in Antarctica on this British Antarctic scientific base, which was just unbelievable. One story I did when I was a, a journalist on the Sydney Morning Herald um, in Australia um, I still remember it was incredibly exciting to do because it was, it was about political donations to parties and um, I discovered that uh, one of the main political parties there was taking money from really dubious people, including someone who was a convicted murderer um, and was in jail when I tracked him down and interviewed him. And, and it's actually the, the excitement that you have and the terror, actually, when you're about to publish a story like that and you have no idea what it's going to, what effect it's going to be like, and even though it's been lawyered, even though it's been edited by colleagues, you always are just slightly nervous about what the impact's going to be. So that was quite exciting. <laughs> the life of a journalist, if it takes it like uh, as a whole and as a mission, can turn in a, in a fantastic life adventure. And I think that's what's so exciting to be working for a media group. And you are a Neiman Fellow uh, as well from uh, Harvard University. Would you like just to touch a bit on this amazing experience that uh, very few have uh, and what has been uh, giving you maybe for your career and your expertise? I think it will be very interesting for our audience. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it is just an, an extraordinary um, year to have if you're um, a Neiman Fellowship, um, which was basically set up um, by some very generous people who realised that the early journalists in the United States um, basically often came from backgrounds where they couldn't go to university, they couldn't do much tertiary education. So the whole idea of it was to help um, journalists from relatively modest backgrounds to get the sort of experience that others um, got if they were happened to be born to um, better off parents. And so they brought them to Harvard for a year and uh, and they basically said, you don't, unlike other journalism fellowships, um, they said, you can do whatever you like. You just have to sit in on courses. You can you can sit on, on music courses all year if you really want to, although that would be kind of a waste of having spent a year at Harvard. So it's an amazing year where you can go and, you know, the year I was there, um, you know, I could listen to Alan Dershowitz in the law school. I could go and listen to these extraordinary 
princes and presidents um, that they had visiting every other week. Um, you know, I remember, you know, one week they had, I think it was someone like Hunter S. Thompson, Martin Amos, and um, I think, I don't know if it was the president of Peru or someone in, in, um, uh, in the space of a couple of days. But um, so, yes, but one of the great things about doing that is that you're constantly exposed to this sort of research that you're talking about. And I remember reading some research. In fact, um, we might have even had the researcher who wrote it come in and speak to all the fellows. So this researcher came in and they had asked people in various professions how they felt about their industry. And those who felt incredibly enthusiastic and just loved the idea of coming into work each day were in biotech. You know, they were in this incredibly important, innovative area but it was super rich. They had money just pouring into it. And amongst those who felt the most depressed <laughs> and unhappy about coming into work each day because they weren't even sure if there was going to be any work to come to were journalists because, you know, economically, financially, um, the industry was really in pain. And unfortunately, it still is um, in many parts of the world. Um, what do you see as uh, the future of journalism? This um, kind of a conflict, but as well dialogue with new technologies that is happening at the moment. What is your opinion on uh, really the sustainability of our business model? Well, it's interesting. You know, back then, um, newspapers were pretty cheap, uh, relatively speaking, and uh, but there was no such thing as a free newspaper and newspapers were by and large supported by advertising revenue. We spoke to people back then um, at the MIT Media Lab, for example, who predicted exactly what's happened, which is that quality media will become much more expensive and it will have to because the traditional advertising that supported it will die away. It'll be a lot easier to produce digitally, but you'll have to charge for it and there'll be a whole range of different charging models. But what will happen ultimately is that the organisations that are able to do important, meaningful, quality journalism will be charging a lot more than they currently do for that. And that, alas, in many ways, is is exactly what's happened. I mean, if you want to take out a subscription to the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, um, the, even the New York Times compared to what it was, you know, it, it's you don't do that for for nothing. You know, these, these publications... Um, cost money. I mean, I would say it's still an incredible bargain. You know, you really get an extraordinary amount of information um, for relatively little money. But nonetheless, you know, this is the way that um, the industry has gone. And so um, that's something that's, you know, it's, it, it's uh, I think, was inevitable. I'm not necessarily, not necessarily saying that, you know, there's pluses and minuses from the way that's worked out. Um, I think in many ways we're doing more extraordinary journalism than we were doing earlier. Not, But, you know, in some ways, inevitably, I think particularly with local journalism, you know, it's it's dying out. You know, there are newspaper and news deserts across countries as rich as the United States and increasingly in other ones as well. And that's that's a real problem, I think. And do you think this is a, like a sociological uh, uh problem from uh, a democratic standpoint in terms of like uh, the richness of uh, uh, dialogue and informations that local people are given. So you think that the general uh, like national titles and newspapers are not enough for the local communities? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's a huge problem because, um, 
you know, it, it, of course, national papers do a terrific job um, of covering a huge um, amount of um, of what's happening in the world, but really they can't possibly cover local authorities, local government stories, and um, and that's where a lot of decisions are made um, that really affect people's lives. You know, and and the even in you know in a country like the UK where um, local authorities have a huge amount of power compared uh, with other countries and they can be running, you know, they run things that are incredibly important to people's lives, everything from schools, aged care, you know, all of these areas that really matter. And we're seeing now in the UK, for example, you know, what happens, particularly after the pandemic, what happens when these services don't exist in the way that they should. So, yeah, I think it's re- really, really important. Um, when we're talking about green tech innovations... And you're an expert in this. Like, how do you stay on top of all these innovations and disruptions that are happening in the market? Yeah, it's really not easy because there is, particularly at the moment, there's so much more money going into these ventures. So, you know, a few not that long ago, I would say maybe you know eight, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, perhaps. Um, even things like solar and wind were called alternative technologies. You know, they were just regarded as something that you know nice to do. And yes, we need to get around to really putting money into this one day, but you know, not something that's going to take off. And then all of a sudden, of course, they have because they work so brilliant. But on top of that, you know, you've got everything from you know green hydrogen and many other colours of hydrogen and various other technologies that, that you know it is quite difficult to um, to stay on top of what they actually can and cannot achieve. Um, but I will say last last year the FT's Tectonic podcast did a few series um, that I was lucky enough to present on um, green tech and what was really going to be interesting. And wh- one of the most amazing ones we did was on um, nuclear fusion and we went out to one of the sites where... Uh, one of these reactors is being worked on. And that, of course, if if nuclear fusion could ever take off in the way that its uh, proponents think it could, you know, that would just be such a game changer. It would be extraordinary. Unfortunately, we're still quite a way away from that. Um, uh, younger journalists that are looking for inspirations from your career and your journey here, do you think that the way of... Writing a good column and writing a good article has changed with uh, the awareness that we have of our reader. I mean, if there is one thing that digitalization gave us is uh, a very interesting um, kind of granular understanding of our audience and uh, who our audience might be, how they can comment, uh, what might trend or not. Do you think it changed or it should change or shouldn't change the way of doing quality journalism? The one huge thing that has changed is that your stories and columns go online and people comment on them. For a good maybe 10, 15 years of my career, I suppose, there was no such thing. You know, you had a letter to the editor or you might get an angry phone call from someone or worse still, your editor might get an angry phone call from someone. Then you get an angry phone call from the editor. But the idea that you'd have hundreds of angry people just burbling on ad infinitum until your story, that just didn't happen. So it was a complete shock to the system when that did start to happen. And I think, you know, it's a, I would say it's a, it's a really mixed blessing. On the one hand, there are some incredibly um, thoughtful, interesting people who make some great comments. Some of them are hilarious. It's just a joy to read them. 
you know, I know people who just stop reading the comments because they think it's bad for their mental health, which, you know, I, I completely understand because that can happen on the, you know, but so you get a much more immediate um, sense, though, of how your, what, whatever you're writing is, um, is being received. And also, of course, that's not counting the audience engagement um, technology that now exists. So you can see exactly how many people at least clicked on it. Um, and and also how long they spent reading it. You know, I think basically it's probably on balance um, a good thing, um, although, you know, uh, I, I think that it has to be used really carefully and intelligently and it's just, you know, all clicks are not equal. And so, and also you can be, you know, we if we simply at the FT um, decided to write about... Um, a stories that involved, you know, Goldman Sachs and sex and maybe a bit of Donald Trump and more sex and some uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson sex. And <laughs> if we did that, our numbers would go through the roof, but our readership would not appreciate it at all because, um, you know, that's not why they buy us. That's not why they're interested. How do you approach the kind of like bad comments or like some not nice storms, but sometimes some, some stories can generate... How do you approach this from a bit more of a mental health perspective? It's a totally two-way thing. Sometimes the comments are just so great and you really want to go in and engage with people. But um, I think probably it sort of just depends on how I'm feeling on the day. And um, <laughs> uh, and it also depends on the topic. Um, you know, I wrote a piece um, not long ago about... So a climate negotiator who I really had, um, had spent a lot of time with, knew quite well and admired a lot, but unfortunately he had, he's got brain cancer and um, his, and I interviewed him and, um, and then, uh, you know, he wrote um, a piece that the, um, uh, what the, 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 the interview was published that I did with him as well verbatim in the um, magazine. Anyway, I was really keen to see the comments um that people wrote in about that. And they were almost uniformly, actually it was pretty much 100% of them, were just really appreciative and um, they were kind, and but they were also just fascinated to hear what he had to say because, you know, he was someone who'd worked in the background, as a lot of civil servants do, and had never really been, had come to much attention, but had just a tremendous amount of experience and knowledge about climate change. So, you know, then I'm really keen to see what people are saying, but um, very often... Um, it's something that one has to work up to after a good, strong cup of coffee. I read um, a lot from you in the work and careers section. How did it happen? Why this uh, focus as well on work and careers and the development of a world of work besides, of course, environment and business? Yeah. So, um, well, basically what happened was I was um, for a long time the full-time environment correspondent for the FT. And then one day Lionel Barber, who was then the editor, came and said, you know, I think what I'd like you to do now is this column. And I thought, oh, God, I love doing the environment. But actually, I would, you know, it would be quite fun to do a column as well. And so that's basically what had happened. Um, and that column um, was always supposed to be about corporate life. And so it went in what is now called the work and careers section. Which is a section we love because we talk a lot about the, the world of work, the future of work. So, Pilita, now there is a different part of this podcast compared to other things that we do at FT. We get the two young people to join us and ask you directly some questions. 
Welcome, Sophia and Tom. So lovely to see you. Thank you for being with us today. Sophia, tell us about you and ask your question to Pilita. Hi, so my name is Sofia Spasanoska, and I recently graduated from King's College with a master's in emerging economies and international development. But I currently work for the media and communications department at the LSE on a media literacy project and organizing the 20th anniversary of the department. And I'm also a social media strategist for Bspire TV, a U.S. channel. So my question is, do you think that improving media literacy has the potential to decrease inequalities and potentially even empower women? And do you think that this actually would have the spillover effect to other countries that have not yet started investing in media literacy policies yet? So when you say media literacy policies, which ones are you talking about specifically? So that is the question. So with media literacy, it is that we still don't have definite definitions. We still don't have it uh, included in education curriculum in the standard. So it's sort of like open-ended question. But with media literacy, it is usually just being able to understand misinformation, disinformation, understanding what comes out, what you're reading, and if this is true and making educated decisions in your life. So that's sort of the broad. Yeah. I mean, so it had quite a different meaning, I would say, um, not that many years ago, although um, possibly many years ago, not to sound too much like a dinosaur. But anyway, um, I think it is unbelievably important and um, probably has never been more important because, you know, for the reasons that uh, we were just discussing earlier, um, the media has become so much more fragmented and quality journalism um, is now um, has an entirely different business model to what it had not that long ago. And so, yeah, it is the the ease with which one can distinguish between quality and less quality and absolute rubbish is, uh, you know, it's just harder. It really is just harder because, you know, people are just growing up and seeing feeds of alleged news appearing on the same platform, whether, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. How are you supposed to distinguish? How are you supposed to understand? So it's, um, I think it's incredibly important. And I, when it comes to reducing inequalities, Probably. Um, there are areas where it probably does. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I can't think of um, particular instances where it would improve equality, but, um, you know, one might be able to argue that there is a case for it. But, you know, really just getting rid of the tremendous amount of quite damaging disinformation is a great task for democracy today. So the more media literacy, the better, I would say. So can I just ask one more question to this? So then would you think that this is the role in of education, of government, or is it sort of to the people themselves to take it upon themselves and, and educate themselves? So, because these platforms exist, then how can they decide what's misinformation, disinformation? Is it just, you know, opposing views, especially with Twitter, right? It's really difficult from their side as well. To, to decide this. So according to you, we, who, who has to take up on this responsibility? I mean, I think we've just seen wave after wave of technology um, come at us and we've adopted it because it exists. And then we've turned around some years later and said, gosh, we better do a bit about regulating this because it's really not working in the way that we wanted it to. And it's interesting now, I think, to see the way that people are thinking about artificial intelligence 
is they they realise that that approach had uh, meant that we, there were great flaws, there were great risks, there were great problems that we didn't really think about. So where people are already saying, well, we don't want to repeat um, what happened with social media with artificial intelligence. So I think, you know, that lesson has been learned that it requires action by individuals by schools, by governments to really address this. It's not something that anybody or any one institution is going to be able to solve alone. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Tom, over to you. Hi, uh, I'm uh, Thomas Charlie, uh, and I recently graduated from the LSE uh, with a BSc in uh, politics and history. Uh, and while I was at the LSE, I uh, was the founder and president of the International Media and Journalism Society. So I have a deep, deep interest in journalism and the media in general. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you, uh, relating back to AI, actually, and the topic of misinformation, um, we, talk, we hear a lot today about how artificial intelligence is going to contribute to misinformation, uh, such as through the production of false images or uh, articles or even uh, voice recordings. Uh, and I wanted to ask uh, if do you think AI can be used to prevent uh, the production of misinformation and if so, uh, whether it should be used in that way? So this is the problem with AI. You know, I, I, I really literally barely understand how the iPhone works. I mean, I, you know, I have a fairly sort of basic understanding. But when it comes to AI, I don't know how to answer that question. And I am told by people who spend their lives working on AI technology that actually the number of people who really understand, not, not, not so much sort of, you know, some basic forms of machine learning, but um, other forms of generative AI, I'm told are just very, you know, there's a, the percentage of people who really understand whether it is going to be possible to use AI in that way. Um, it's, it's, it's quite small. I mean, I think you see that play out whenever you see these congressional hearings when um, you get AI leaders in front of politicians and it's invariably, it's not really, I wouldn't say it's a dialogue of the deaf always, but, you know, you do get people sort of talking past one another constantly, which is a, it's a, it's a function of, of the technology. But I think it, it is quite a problem um, and I'm sure we'll come over it and I'd like to think that AI could be used um, for that. And indeed, many, many, many other things, including climate change itself, you know, it, it, it should and could potentially um, be able to do tremendous good for the world. But I just don't know if it's going to be able to work out like that, which is why we're in the state we're in when it comes to thinking about its future at the moment. Uh, and just to follow up, if I may, um, I was wondering if given that we should put measures in place internationally to regulate AI? Or should we uh, allow corporations to regulate AI themselves? Do you think that would be uh, a possibility? Especially if uh, these AI models uh, are being developed amongst a very small group of corporations as they are now. So the corporations themselves are saying they want regulation. Um, and cynics are saying, well, you know, that's because they want their sort of regulation and maybe there's some truth in that. But um, I think that actually uh, there are a lot of people who genuinely understand that uh, it shouldn't just be up to private corporations um, to uh, develop this technology given its potentially far-reaching 
effects. So, you know, I feel very strongly that we can't possibly allow that to happen. And indeed, we won't, I think. And we'll, we will inevitably end up with a form of international regulation, or at least, you know, management of this technology. Um, I think that that's absolutely inevitable. And in fact, we'll probably see it happening much faster than people imagined. Excellent. Thank you. Salma Sofia and above all Pilita, thank you so much for this episode. I found it super informative. Thank you so much, guys, and up for, of course, listening to all the different episodes of the talent show. And of course, check all the other Financial Times podcasts wherever you get your audio product. If you're a listener of a talent show, I bet you're quite interested in the world of work and in understanding trends that are shaking up workplaces worldwide today. I recommend you to check out Working It, the FT's workplace podcast and newsletter. Join our friend and host Isabel Berwick every Wednesday for understanding the big ideas shaping work today and the old habits we need to leave behind. Tune in, subscribe and follow. This has been The Talent Show, which is produced by the FT Talent Team, Aya Al-Shihabi, and me, Virginia Stani. Our podcast producer, editor and sound engineer is Arturo Ochoa, and our social media producer is Letizia Clementi. Our music is by Dennis Kishuk. Check out all of the Talent Show episodes at fttalent.ft.com, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and follow FT Talent on socials for updates. Until next time, and keep listening. Keep listening.